From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Life expectancy in Colorado dropped dramatically last year because of the pandemic. When you dig into the numbers by race and ethnicity or zip code by zip code, the statistics tell stories about systemic inequities and the work that needs to continue long after the state of emergency wanes. Then it's hot in Colorado and across the West. What are the federal government and Coloradans' best ideas for dealing with wildfires that may ignite? And a pyramid-like Paiute artist challenges romanticism about American history and erasure of indigenous people. There's policies in this country that were meant to eradicate indigenous people. And so to make a statement existence as protest is to acknowledge these things were meant to eliminate our culture, our language, our traditions, our people, and it didn't work. Plus, what does Major League Baseball's All-Star Game mean for business in Denver? I'm Leanne Klassen, and my husband Bob and I are CPR leadership partners. We are very happy to be able to support CPR. The wider reach, the wider coverage of the world, of Washington, of Colorado, and individual communities across various platforms all continues to add to the value of CPR, and it truly is a treasure for our state. Connect your passion for CPR with a gift at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. After a year of dire stories and statistics, recently we learned this. So many Coloradans died of COVID-19 and related causes, including drug overdoses, that life expectancy fell dramatically this past year, and people of color were particularly hard hit. Let's talk about the stories behind the numbers. Dr. Lily Cervantes is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at Denver Health, and John Daly is CPR's health reporter. He's been covering the pandemic from the start. John, let's start with you. What impact has the pandemic had on life expectancy? Well, uh, quite frankly, Avery, it's been devastating. The state health department released the data recently. It shows overall life expectancy in Colorado dropped by a full two years from 80.9 years in 2019 to 78.9 years in 2020. And the drop was most alarming among communities of color. Enough Hispanic and black residents died in the pandemic that both groups' life expectancy statistics fell by about four years. The drop among white people in Colorado was 1.4 years. Just to clarify, life expectancy is not about how long any one person can expect to live, right? Yeah, that's right. Life expectancy is a statistical average of all people in a particular geographic area or demographic group. It's not a predictor for individuals. The life expectancy for people who've lived through the pandemic has not changed. How do Colorado's life expectancy numbers compare with national statistics? Well, the state data mirrors a new national study showing life expectancy plunged for Americans, declining 8.5 times more than the average of 16 peer high-income nations, and that's between 2018 and 2020. That study was published in the BMJ, the Journal of the British Medical Association. It was co-authored by Ryan Masters, a researcher at CU Boulder. He says a lack of equitable access to health care and other inequalities are key factors. Rising inequality, systemic racism, unequal access to health care, unequal access to education and, and housing. And I should note that the study did not examine only deaths caused directly by COVID-19. 
a number that can be difficult to calculate, but instead looked at all deaths that happened in 2020. And we're going to talk about the inequalities that contributed in just a moment. But first, when was the last time the U.S. saw such a big drop in life expectancy? It must have been decades. Yeah, you'd have to go back decades. The U.S. hasn't seen such a drop in life expectancy this large since 1943. Of course, that's during World War II. And the declines among Black and Hispanic Americans are especially troubling. After years of experiencing higher life expectancy than white men, Hispanic men saw that average erased in 2020. In 2020, life expectancy in the U.S. uh, for the Black male population was 68, the lowest it's been since 1998. Again, here's CU Boulder's Ryan Masters. It's devastating, horrific, an absolute tragedy. But again, one that we probably could have seen just because of the deeply rooted systemic factors. Dr. Lily Cervantes from Denver Health, what do you make of this? To be honest, it's not surprising. When you think about life expectancy, you really have to consider, you know, how we think about these numbers and how we sort of think about social injustice. Even predating the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, there was a life expectancy difference within Denver neighborhoods. And again, having to do with the social determinants of health. How long you live in this country depends on where you live, your zip code. Tell me a little bit more about those longstanding differences that the COVID-19 highlighted um, and exacerbated when it comes to those zip codes and the difference in access between healthcare for white Americans and access for people of color. Yeah, so if we consider Denver County, just in Denver County alone, I grew up in the Valverde neighborhood. This is a neighborhood that has a life expectancy that is six years less than the Washington Park neighborhood, which is just a five-minute drive. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, we were seeing high case rates in this neighborhood. In fact, double the number that uh, the Latino community constitute in the city of Denver. And when you look at vaccine uptake, um, it's also lower in this neighborhood. And so, you know, a lot of the social injustice, again, thinking about those social determinants of health has to do with some of the inequities seen by zip code. In the Valverde neighborhood, for example, um, dating back to the 1930s, this is a neighborhood that was redlined, meaning that banks restricted lending in those neighborhoods, resulting in low investment in those neighborhoods, high poverty rates, uh, low number of grocery stores, no parks or schools. And so when you think about COVID-19, this is a community that has a greater exposure to COVID-19. Um, they have less safeguards. Most com- most individuals from this community are foreign-born and primarily, primarily uh, uh, with limited English proficiency. And so um, these are individuals who are at higher risk um, to begin with because of these social injustices. Right. COVID-19 didn't cause these injustices. It highlighted them. Colorado has seen about 7,000 deaths due to COVID-19 in the early days of the pandemic. Those deaths were occurring disproportionately among Black and Hispanic residents. Over time, the official statistics have moved the percentage of deaths in both categories closer to the actual representation in the population. But almost 5% of death cases are still listed as unknown race and ethnicity. We're going to bring in another guest here, Dr. Ozzy Granardo, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Centura Health. Welcome, Dr. Granardo, we know that people of all kinds, including people of color, died in greater numbers of all causes this past year, not just COVID-19, right? Correct. Correct. So when we look at um, who was dying or who was affected by COVID, um, we saw the impact there 
with different populations. And then we look at all the other things that were going on in terms of health with other populations. So whether or not it was um, cancer screenings, people not getting their um, mammograms or colonoscopies, we'll see that impact coming up um, because of the delayed screenings and care that people have gotten for those, as well then as a lot of the care that was put off um, during that time and the inaccessibility of patients to get to providers or to have that access to any provider at all during the pandemic. So there were a lot of a lot of different reasons for um, us to have as a community, as a state, to have worsening numbers across the board with our health. And Dr. Granado, can you tell me more about what you've seen in the systemic inequalities that drive this, this trend? Yeah, for instance, as Dr. Cervantes was saying, when you look at the social determinants of health and how those impact certain communities that are adjacent to each other, um, when we look at food insecurity, for instance, those food deserts, and you place a map of those places in and around Colorado and in Denver that have low access to quality foods, um, that mirrors the numbers of people who were affected by COVID and also mirrors the number of people who did not get immunized or who didn't have access early to immunizations. So in knowing and understanding how all these things are intertwined and that those vulnerable populations have many other, truly many other aspects of their life that need to be addressed for their health, we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can on a variety of fronts to make sure that we're all protected as well as we could be. And these broad statistics, they help us understand individual people's stories. And as I understand that you grew up, Dr. Cervantes, in a neighborhood where health outcomes were very different from others just a few miles away. That's right. That was the Valverde neighborhood, um, which is, again, you know, just five miles away from the Wash Park neighborhood, but faces a life expectancy that is six years less and primarily having to do with just the living conditions that children grow up with, uh, you know, in those two adjacent neighborhoods where in one neighborhood, they may be facing more housing securities, more stress. Their parents might be working two jobs instead of one. There might be more drug availability. And so, you know, it's, it's really thinking through thoughtfully about these social determinants of health and what children grow up with and what they're exposed to in adjacent neighborhoods. And I'd love to hear from both of you about possible solutions. Obviously, these are entrenched, and we know that it's difficult to solve challenges. But Dr. Gonardo, tell us what are the next right steps that you see? For me, it's leading with equity. When we make policy decisions, when we make resource decisions, it's keeping those vulnerable populations at the top of mind and at the forefront of what we're doing. When that doesn't happen, we see then how the vaccine rollout went out for Colorado and our most vulnerable neighborhoods. It didn't get to the people it needed to get to. And if there was a different focus to start off, then we would have likely seen, hopefully, different outcomes. So as we work towards the future and we continue to make um, decisions about where we need to make the biggest impact, and there are easy ones to make, whether or not it's access, whether or not it's um, any issue around social determinants of health, and especially vulnerable populations, keeping equity and those populations at the forefront of our minds when we're making those decisions will ultimately help down the road and in the short term.
And Dr. Cervantes, you've been telling us about the historic inequities and the way that even things like decades-old redlining continue to affect today's health outcomes. What do you see as next right steps? We need to invest more in social determinants of health. Um, Thinking back to that study, the U.S. compared to these other high-income countries spends less of its gross domestic product on social services. And so as we think about how we're going to lift our communities, we have to um, invest in the upstream social and environmental factors because that's what contributes to increased risk for infection, transmission, and worse outcomes. Um, One very marginalized group that has been largely ignored during the pandemic are the undocumented who have comprised the majority of those in the essential workforce. They have lacked safeguards, um, including health insurance and even outpatient COVID-19 care. And so I think as we look to the future, we need to consider even those who are most marginalized because we can only be as healthy as those that are most vulnerable. And one other thing I'd love to say is that we need to have these marginalized groups at the table thinking about these solutions because it is only when we include them that we can think of uh, effective um, strategies. And that's so important. As you're talking with folks who are in marginalized groups, tell me more about what you're hearing about the health solutions that um, different communities would like to see. That's a great question. So one of the groups that has been largely ignored in the city has been the Latino, predominantly Spanish-speaking community from northern Mexico. And this is a group where we've had probably um, the most challenges in vaccine uptake And, um, you know, some of the most important solutions in bringing the vaccine to this community have been really thinking outside of the box. So, you know, how do we bring the vaccines to their communities, the community settings that they're comfortable in, where they don't feel discriminated against, where they are not worried, um, you know, that someone will take their information and um, deport them or deport their families because we have a lot of mixed immigration status families. And so it's really bringing them to the table, asking them, how do we bring the vaccine to you? Do we provide childcare? Is it transportation? Do we go to church community settings? Do we bring them to uh, the uh, places they work? And so it's really meeting people where they are in an individualized way. It's not enough to say that simply everyone is eligible for a vaccine. Now, what I'm hearing is that there are still barriers. That's right. And if you look at Denver's data, uh, one of the communities that has the lowest vaccine uptake has been the Latino community. And so, you know, as we move forward and consider the health injustices and how we have provided care um, to these communities in the past, we really need to rethink how we do things moving forward. Um, Just in Denver, the Latino community comprised about 29.3% of the population, um, yet only three to four out of 10 people, Latino people in Denver have been vaccinated compared to seven to eight people out of 10 uh, white non-Latinos in Denver. And so we still have work to do. um, And, you know, as we sort of work on investing in social challenges and move forward, we need to think about how we can prevent you know, such a disproportionate burden in our Black and Latino communities moving forward in the future. How coordinated is the messaging between urban and rural settings when we're talking about vaccines? Right now, I know that there are a lot of community health workers and um, trusted leaders that are delivering the vaccine um, throughout the state of Colorado. And they're delivering the vaccine in a way that is culture and language concordant. 
Um, I think that there is more to be done, but I think that as the city and the state invest in these trusted Latino serving and black community serving and indigenous community serving community organizations, we can have greater reach. And so I think that at the beginning of the pandemic, there might've been, you know, maybe a little bit of a lack of coordination, uh, maybe more misinformation, but I think that um, the groups um, are, are working um, in more in, in, in solidarity together um, and there's more collaboration. And I think that there's greater reach because there's greater awareness. Um, a lot of the community-based organizations have been working together to make sure that, these, that the information reaches the various groups in a way that is culture and language concordant. And Dr. Gnardo, just briefly in about the 30 seconds we have left, what has your experience been in something that you would like to see change in vaccine outreach? Well, certainly I, I'm very interested in how organizations who are grassroots are getting funded. There are a few different organizations and foundations that have come together to really look at that piece to say, how can we give funding to groups that are doing the work that Dr. Cervantes mentioned? How are they bringing those communities to the table to actually understand what the best way is and where the energies and resources need to be directed to make sure that those communities actually get the vaccine that they need? So as we look at um, funding for how resources are deployed and where those resources go, hopefully they'll continue to be a focus on um, those direct groups working hand-in-hand with the community and those community leaders who are leading those efforts to make sure their community gets the vaccines that they need. Dr. Ozzie Granardo is Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Centura Health. Dr. Lily Cervantes is an Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine at Denver Health. And John Daly is CPR's health reporter. Thank you all for being here. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. There's a confluence happening in the West, extreme heat, extreme drought, and the possibility of another record-breaking wildfire season. It's so serious that President Joe Biden convened a meeting recently with Western governors to talk wildfire preparedness and response. This is an area that has been under-resourced, but that's going to change if we have anything to do with it. We can't cut corners when it comes to managing our wildfires or supporting our firefighters. Members of Colorado's congressional delegation have their own ideas to deal with these problems. CPR's Caitlin Kim looks at the federal response to drought and wildfires and what Coloradans on the ground want to see happen. Much of San Miguel County in the southwestern corner of the state is in exceptional drought. Commissioner Hillary Cooper describes what it's like there. The land is, you know, that red cracked earth that is um, just looks broken. Rancher Mark Rober, who lives in the county, is experiencing this firsthand. In good years, we'll put up between uh, three to 500 ton of hay, and this year we will put up zero. Come winter, he may have to buy hay to keep his cattle fed, that or sell some off. Rober says he's talked to Democratic Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper, as well as Republican Representative Lauren Boebert, about the need for more water efficiency and more water infrastructure. Boebert is focused on increasing water storage. 
I support efforts to streamline cumbersome and bureaucratic policies in order to allow the construction of new water storage projects. Cooper says that's too late for this season. Yes, more water storage is probably needed, but we can do that in smart ways. There's not any more water out there. She'd like to see federal policies focus on financial assistance for the ag industry or how to protect overall watershed health. That's also on the mind of Zane Kessler with the Colorado River Water District. The health of our forests and our watersheds, these are the largest reservoirs that that we have, uh, is snowpack uh, on our forests and federal lands on the western slope. Call it natural infrastructure, something that would go hand in hand with traditional water infrastructure. And that's a big concern, even in areas not currently in drought, but where wildfires have damaged watersheds. In Boulder County, which experienced two of the largest wildfires last year, County Commissioner Matt Jones says the federal government needs to go on the offense with forest health mitigation and beef up its defense when it comes to wildfires. They just don't have enough staff. That's the bottom line. And so it's very hard for them to get ahead on mitigation work, which is just critical and so much more uh, productive and less expensive than fighting fires and then trying to clean up after fires. Washington, D.C. is taking note and starting to talk about some very big numbers. $60 billion sounds like a lot of money, and I, I, I know that it does. We're spending that money anyway. We're just spending it fighting fires. That's Bennett talking about his Outdoor Restoration Partnership Act, a big-ticket bill that would create jobs focused on forest health and restoring watersheds. Representative Joe Nagoose has pitched a Climate Conservation Corps bill, which would also create jobs for wildfire prevention and preparedness and include supplemental water funding. Both of these ideas are in Biden's huge infrastructure plan known as the American Jobs Act. But Jessica Goad with Conservation Colorado says drought and wildfires are symptoms of a larger problem. We have to fight the disease itself, which is climate change. Colorado Democrats have been sounding the alarm for a while, but the issue hasn't gained much traction with Republicans. That could change. Last month, a conservative climate caucus was started. Regardless of the politics, Jason Seibold, geography professor at Colorado State University, thinks the conversation needs to happen. We are staring down a long time of just increased fire, increased fire, increased fire. But we can protect communities. We can protect people. We can protect valuable infrastructure like watersheds, um, power lines, etc. The simple fact is, when it comes to water and fires, everyone in Colorado has skin in the game. Back at his ranch in San Miguel, Mark Rober says there's no question that climate change is happening, but he's not sure there's much government can do. I don't know that we have any answers, and I think that's what we have to be careful of is if we don't jump over a cliff trying to fix something that we really have no control over. For now, he continues to check the horizon and his weather apps for any signs of rain. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Paintings line the History Colorado Center mezzanine in downtown Denver, and this week is your last chance to see them in person. At first glance, some of the images play into stereotypes of indigenous people. There are black and white photos of folks in regalia, cartoons and posters. But Greg Deal is actually drawing on those stereotypes to break them down. The title of the exhibition, Merciless Indian Savages, comes straight from a line in the Declaration of Independence. The inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. 
Greg Deal reading there. I met him at the exhibition in May. It was actually his first time seeing the display, even though it's been up since August. He lives in Peyton, Colorado, and because of the pandemic, there wasn't an opening celebration. So who is Deal? I am a uh, husband, a father, uh, an artist, a disruptor. Uh, Been in Colorado for about five and a half years now, and uh, I'm a human that has indigenous roots in the United States. He's also a member of the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe. The first image in the exhibition, it sets the tone. It's based on a Fritz Scholder painting that's in the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian. Deal worked there after college. Like Scholder's painting, Deal's shows a man with feathers in his hair covered in the American flag. It's sort of a, a tough one for me because the idea of a, a Native person wrapped in American flag um, has... Uh, elements of uh, romanticism associated with it. And, um, and I don't particularly agree with those things. But the stiffness of the flag, the way that the flag is sort of draped, but there's, there's no folds, there's no wrinkles, it looks very stiff and, and uncomfortable. The discomfort of that is uh, meant to sort of counteract the romantic perception of a piece like this. So it's not really draped, it's almost constricting. Yeah. The idea of romanticism and American romanticism, like that's really important in this whole exhibition. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so much of indigenous existence is predicated upon the perception of non-native people. And if I can be frank, um, with white, you know, Euro-American people. And uh, the romanticism of the project that is America, um, because it, it, it was started as just like a project. Let's see if this works. And, um, particularly the romantic nationalism that's based around those things, even from a historical context. Um, For example, uh, Manifest Destiny, the Expansion West, the founding documents. Um, I mean, using the term merciless Indian savages for the title of an exhibition is meant to put a glaring light on the fact that these things are problematic from the beginning. And whether or not we're thinking critically about that ultimately informs how much we're buying into that romanticism. And uh, are we reconciling those things? Are we discussing those things? Are we sweeping them under the rug so that we can continue to, to you know, live our American lives in this strange place of hope? And, and not that hope's a bad thing, but, you know, there is there's a term that came up over the last four or five years of uh, make America great again. And I think that that sweeps a whole lot of things under the rug that doesn't allow for critical thinking about the foundation of this country uh, and ultimately where we're at right now. And part of what I think of in that American romanticism is also just the erasure of indigenous people from cultural and political conversations. And I think your next art pieces of art kind of get into that. Sure. So there's this series of paintings that are comic book style over here. Tell me what we're seeing. So this is a series that I've been working on called The Others, um, where I've reappropriated old comic book images from the 40s and 50s. Uh, The natives are either standing strong and making strong statements, or they're actually winning in a fight that's being uh, illustrated. And I've replaced the dialogue with um, lyrics from punk rock songs. Um, that's what I grew up with. That was what was important to me. And so the indigenous struggle, like some of the language, some of the vernacular is similar, disenfranchisement, uh, racism, inequity, you know, all of these things that 
are glaring issues within our society that we are kind of seeing come to the forefront with things like Black Lives Matter. And um, this is meant to sort of articulate that using a stereotype that is ultimately kind of uh, familiar to uh, Western eyes and coupling that with my own sense of ideology or at least the genesis of my own ideology, which has been really punk rock music. The last one's called That's Progress. It's from a, a band called DOA. It's a song about gentrification. Gentrification and Indian removal are not the same, but a lot of the vernacular can certainly cross over. Um, it just says you're evicted. It's time to leave. It don't matter if your family's been here 30 years with a, an indigenous person on a horse with a hatchet and a red coat um, about to be on the receiving end of that hatchet. Tell me a little bit about punk music and how that how you involve that in your art. Um, I think part of my evolution as just like a contemporary artist is pulling things in that are important to me as a person. I, I grew up in I grew up in Park City, Utah. It's a ski resort town, you know, a small town in Utah, um, where my sister and I and maybe two or three other people, you know, throughout high school were all people of color. And, uh, which is not, nothing to say of, you know, people who are identifying as being gay, um, or lesbian or queer or non-binary or anything else. And just how stifling and difficult that was. So for me, it was always about skateboarding and snowboarding and punk shows and hip hop. And which at the time, cause I'm older now, <laughs> like at the time those were seen as sort of anti-social movements that are actually quite social. <laughs> and so these are the things that kept me above the fray and helped me sort of stay on track and, and um, keep in perspective my own value as a young kid that was really, you know, suffering and, and having a difficult time. So to incorporate that into the work to me is sort of going full circle and coming around back to acknowledging the uh, the debt that something like punk music played to keeping me, you know, in a good place as a kid. I love that. And so much of your work, it's also, it's not just the stereotypes that we're seeing in comic books. You're playing with all kinds of stereotypes in your work. Sure. Why is that important? Um, I think speaking in a language that people understand is really important. And, uh, and whether that's visual language or, or uh, words, that these are the things, you know, like how can I explain the indigenous, the indigenous struggle to somebody that has never heard about the history of the indigenous struggle, who have no context, that believe that John Wayne and the Cowboys and Indians is, is like literal acknowledgement of indigenous existence. And these things are made up. How can I possibly have a discussion with somebody over the importance of our identity and the importance of the, um, the diversity of our identity and that we even exist or even that all these different things happened that have brought us to this point that really should be acknowledged uh, if they have no concept of what that even means, what that even looks like. That an indigenous person isn't somebody who's draped in buckskin, has a you know long hair and and um, and a headdress. That can actually be a lot of things. And the intersection of sub movements like punk rock and skateboarding and hip hop and metal and like all these little things 
have meant a lot to a lot of indigenous kids that are just trying to survive and trying to get through these, these spaces that were really not made for them. And so stereotypes or the use of stereotypes is meant to use things that people are familiar with. So I'm speaking in a language that they understand. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you are considering a lot about how people who are not indigenous are viewing your work for people who are indigenous, who are seeing your work. Um, how do you want to communicate with them? I, I'm, I don't think I'm saying anything that another Native person doesn't already know or doesn't already recognize. Um, this is twofold. I mean, part of it is to sort of buck the system that's been in place for non-Native people to kind of see and be like, what am I looking at? Why, does it, why is it saying this? Why is it doing this? But likewise for Indigenous people, um, particularly my generation, and, and I think we're really fortunate in the generation after me are starting to come out of these things. Um, a lot of these things have defined our identities when we were kids, you know, that we're like watching Kevin Costner and Dances with Wolves and listening to Lakota language and connecting with that because there is no representation because that's the only thing that we have to gravitate to. And, and it's why you, you know, have a, a kid uh, that's native that wears like a Cleveland Indians hat because there's no representation. They're trying to connect with something. And so I think likewise, we're just seeing things that are familiar to our own experience as like indigenous people living in America um, and being able to take these things and flip them in a way that is empowering and also just informing various issues and things, which isn't necessarily my goal, but I think it's a, a certainly a residual of, of the work that I'm doing. And that positive representation, not representing people with negative stereotypes, that's also part of your work, right? Yeah, for sure. The title of the collection, Merciless Indian Savages, is lifted from a line in the Declaration of Independence. Deal's paintings challenge romanticism about American history and erasure of indigenous people. I asked Deal to show me a couple of his favorite paintings in the exhibit. He picked out one that he says stands out a bit from the rest of his work. Most of my stuff's been pretty polarizing up to this point, like very heavily defined. And, uh, and I like this idea of creating something that is positive that you can connect with it. You don't have to be indigenous to connect with it. And I think that that's important. It's a poster style acrylic painting in red and black. Basically an indigenous woman looking up. Uh, it's meant to be hopeful. Um, it says rise above her head. Uh, she's wearing some fancy earrings, which for native people, particularly native women, uh, that's a that's an important set of representation. But it is meant to be a piece that uh, anybody can connect with. Deal said the image has spread beyond art galleries. I was able to do a mural of this on the Red Line building um, off Arapaho uh, and um, in a couple of other places as well. And I think that that connection with it, you know, in terms of um, in terms of being able to uh, have something that's just simply has a positive message attached to it, it was new to me at the time. Then Deal led me to a painting with really striking juxtaposition. A man from an old black and white photo stares out from the painting with a bright red lightning bolt across his face. He has a spray-painted yellow halo behind his head. I think what I originally called a, like uh, an Indian Bowie, I think, is when I started. It, it's an image that I started in like 2010. It just like appeared in a couple of places. And I was having this discussion with my mom because we grew up with Bowie in the house. My mom was a big... David Bowie fan and um, and some of his songs remind her of me when I was really little and and so I started sort of implementing you know this sort of Ziggy Stardust lightning bolt over the face of a native person 
uh, who's a Western Shoshone man. And, um, and it's this incredible sort of intersection of pop culture and pop culture. You know, like those old black and white native images is very much a part of popular culture in America. But adding in this like popular culture aspect of David Bowie. And, and I think it's this sort of beautiful thing of like taking something that's often considered as a relic and putting elements around him or on him that immediately put him into the present. And that the, the relic is not really relevant in this, that the past and the present and the future all share the same space, which is an indigenous concept. You know, this idea that these timelines of old and new is very much a Western concept, that these things can actually all exist together and still exist together in, in relevance. Is this an Edward Curtis photo? Um, I believe it is. Okay, because yeah. it looks, it's like a very, it, it's the black and white totally. photo that we associate with. Totally. This is one of the ones that's most striking to me in here, too, because Edward Curtis, he was taking photographs of Native people at a time when the American government was involved in removing people from their land yeah. and instituting policies of erasure, and he's taking these very romantic photos, yeah. and so people... Like, the criticism is that he is a big part of indigenous erasure. So to reclaim it like this, to have the photo of a person in, like, some traditional dress with a Bowie stripe across his face is really cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. And, and yeah, I, I had a moment where I was uh, essentially printing out these photographs large and placing them into spaces where they clearly are not meant to belong, contemporary spaces. And um, doing those in a way that is bucking that system. Uh, Edward Curtis, you know, he famously went out and said that uh, he wanted to uh, capture images of them because they're a vanishing race. These are, these are systems that have been set up and that have informed Americans, if not the world, about our existence within a very, very small scope and if you look at, you know, the early or the mid 1800s um, all the way up to now, it's 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 almost a completely blank slate. Like nobody knows what happened between that time and this time, which is why it's really easy to convince people that indigenous people don't exist anymore because we're not part of that popular discussion. Plains Indian Wars and then nothing. And there's a civil rights movement. There is uh, movements against um, against uh, various things like mascots and erasure and now we're starting to see land recognitions uh the next step to land recognition is land back you know so we're there's these things that have been going on and things that have happened throughout history uh for sterilization of indigenous women by the indian health services which is part of the health and human services boarding schools and forcing kids into assimilation to quit their languages their traditions their 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 names they had to abandon their given names and take on christian names like John and, and Dave and stuff like that. And so these things all happened between that time and this time. And now we're seeing the rising up of young people who are not just adept at, at, at traversing the world that we're in now, but are also heavily informed by their own identity from a historical point of view, from a community point of view, and moving forward to reclaim these spaces. Uh, but to the rest of America, I think it ends up looking like that we just popped up out of nowhere and did something because these things are just not taught about. And people sometimes use the wrong tense when they're talking about Native people that yeah. are here and people use the past tense. Yeah. And that's part of the stereotype breaking that you're doing here, too, is talking about the modern identity. Yeah, for sure. I mean, 
at the same time, if I can, if I can yeah. say this, like, I don't have an agenda to change the world. I am articulating the world that I see through my own eyes as a father of five children and who are all members of our tribal community, but you know, might not look the part that people would expect. Like, how am I going to look at identity through that? Like, how does stereotype affect them? I know how it affects me, but I, I'm wondering how it will affect them. Making statements like this last piece that just simply says existence as protest is a statement that is meant to identify the fact that there have been policies in this country, going back to American democracy, uh, there's policies in this country that were meant to eradicate indigenous people. And so to make a statement existence as protest is in fact to acknowledge that these things were meant to eliminate our culture, our language, our traditions, our people, and it didn't work. It hasn't worked. We're still here. We're still thriving. We're still moving forward, if not actually gaining ground on a lot of these conversations and in the way that we're represented in history, in our cities, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. Like 75% of Native people don't live on the reservation. And Denver itself has, I think, 30 to 40,000 um, people living in the city that are Native, that identify as being Indigenous. Um, those are big numbers for a community like this. Are you making space for these people? Are you allowing these people to tell their own stories? What does representation look like? This exhibit, it's been up since August, and it's been a crazy year. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of... This deals with the political existence of Indigenous people in the United States, starting with the Declaration of Independence. Um, where are we at now? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think for the last five or 10 years, uh, land recognitions have become a pretty regular thing, especially in academia. Uh, what's the next step? If you keep saying the same thing over and over again, that doesn't mean anything. I always encourage people to you know, donate to an organization that is enacting change. We have Deb Holland, who is the Secretary of the Interior, and uh, we have hope in those things which is a weird place to be, you know, because there's oftentimes not been a lot of hope in those places. I have hope, but I'm pretty cynical about a lot of this stuff. Uh, and I try not to be, but it's hard not to be. But then socially, we're talking, you know, in the middle of Black Lives Matter, we're talking about uh, a, a new term, Black Indigenous people of color. We're being included in the conversation in places where oftentimes those conversations have been segmented out. And, um, and not through our doing, but just simply through the representation of those things. The American Indian Movement were running at the same time as the Black Panther Party, coming off the heels of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and all of the movements that were happening during the Civil Rights Movement, which is alongside Latinos and worker rights, which is alongside Asian rights and gay rights. And all of those things happen at the same time throughout the country. But they compartmentalize those things to make them look like they're not together. And there's conversations that have to be had as a result of that. I think for the first time, at least in my lifetime, we're seeing those conversations at the forefront and people are trying to be more comfortable with the uncomfortable. And I think that that's exciting. My hope is it just keeps moving forward. It keeps going and doesn't lose ground. Greg, I want to thank you so much for sharing your art with us. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me. <laughs> it's, it's good talking to somebody in person. Greg Deal is an artist from Peyton, Colorado, and a member of the Pyramid Lake Paiute Tribe. We spoke in May. His exhibition, Merciless Indian Savages, is on display at the History Colorado Center for just one more week through Sunday. You can also find photos of the paintings that we talked about at CPR.org. 
Back in a moment, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Something has shifted in the way we're all talking about cannabis legalization. This is about repairing harm that's been done to communities as a part of the failed war on drugs. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and I host On Something, a podcast all about life after marijuana legalization. This season, we're focusing entirely on the pitfalls along the path to social equity. Black and brown people are still getting arrested. On Something, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Colorado is reopening just in time for crowds to descend on Denver for the Major League Baseball All-Star Game tomorrow. It's a chance for the city's bars and restaurants to shine again after the worst of the pandemic, and hopefully to make up for some of the ground they lost. But there are challenges, too. CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland spoke with business owners. The Block Distilling Company makes liquor on site. When the bar was closed during the pandemic, they stayed busy as a wholesaler and serving drinks to go. At one point, the distillery was even working with local brewers to make hand sanitizers. Lately, they've been working on how to mix the perfect bright purple cocktail to honor the hometown team for the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. We actually found that purple cabbage dyes stuff really well. And if you are careful with how you get the color, you don't actually get uh, any real perceivable flavor from the cabbage. That's Craig Weaver. He's one of the distillery's owners. He shows me how to make it. A little ice in the mixing tin. Cool off the gin as we make the cocktail. Get the gin and the syrup nice and mixed up. And finally our garnish. And that is it. That is the no harm, no foul special for the All-Star Game. The Block Distilling Company is about a 20-minute walk from Coors Field, across the street from Odell's Brewery and Shake Shack in Denver's Rhino neighborhood. They're not a sports bar, but Weaver thinks they'll attract visitors in town for the game. Fingers crossed. I mean, hopefully all of the travelers are, are wanting to experience the other parts of Denver outside of just the stadium. State and city officials are optimistic the game will draw a big crowd and lots of money. Coors Field is back at full capacity as of last month. Estimates on how much revenue the game will generate vary. In April, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock and Governor Jared Polis said the economic impact could be anywhere from $100 million to $190 million. Matt Klaus is a professor of finance at DU's Daniels College of Business. It's whether or not they've sold a lot of tickets to people outside of Denver is the real factor as to whether there's going to be a whole lot of economic impact. Klaus says that's especially difficult to model this year. People are traveling again, but the All-Star Game means spending time in large crowds. And some people might not be ready for that. There are some people who are reluctant to to get into crowds and, and other people who are incredibly excited about getting into crowds. So it's a, it, it's tough to forecast. There's no hard data available yet on how many people are actually coming to the game. But a quick scan of downtown hotels shows that many are sold out in the days leading up to the game. That's promising for businesses hoping for a windfall. Even if the economic impact is hard to predict, people are definitely excited. Jim Pittinger owns Biker Gyms, a gourmet hot dog place just a few blocks from Coors Field. We're planning on it being sort of a cross between... I say St. Patrick's Day, Oktoberfest, the 4th of July, opening day, all kind of getting shoehorned into a, into a long weekend or a long week. Just like any big party, there's the potential for last-minute hiccups. 
One of the big questions looming over the event is staffing. Business owners everywhere are struggling to hire enough workers to keep up with demand as the economy reopens. That's especially true in the hospitality business. Eric Riggs owns Fresh Craft. It's a casual restaurant and bar specializing in craft beers, about 10 minutes from Coors Field. He's not usually mobbed when the Rockies play, but he is expecting to see overflow from the All-Star game. He says he hopes he has enough people working. Pushing and trying to get as many people in here and trained up as possible. If it gets too busy and he doesn't have the staff, Riggs says he'll have to limit seating and start a wait list. Not ideal for a business. It's a double-edged sword in that sense. Mostly, though, the extra foot traffic will be a welcome change for downtown bars and restaurants. Office workers haven't really come back yet. And, Riggs says, aside from getting the all-star game, it's been a disappointing year for the local sports scene. I think it means a lot to everyone uh, in that sense that it kind of fills some of those gaps. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. The All-Star Home Run Derby is tonight at Coors Field. The All-Star Game is tomorrow night, and thanks to the Colorado Batters team, who always hits it out of the park. Carl Bielek. Allie Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill with special thanks to John Daly. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.